Hello everyone and welcome back to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. This is episode 23 and today I was joined by one of the world's leading sprints coaches and leaders of coaching education as the CEO of Altus, Stuart McMillan. I won't lie, I expected this episode to be very thought-provoking and perhaps the reason you're here is because you're expecting that too. It's definitely part of the reason why I delayed having this chat for so long because I wasn't sure if I would be ready to deep dive in with someone who is very well known for being able to take a conversation as deep and across many different angles as possible as it pertains to sports performance and coaching in general. Stu gave me more than a bargain for and I think that is intended to say that you're in for a treat because he really divided two very simplistic categories up and in turn was able to target a belief system that many coaches and athletes hold and that is striving for this optimized technical model and how we end up getting there. Stu used the idea of effectiveness and efficiency to kind of categorize or summarize an approach to creating stability or optimizing, not even optimizing, but essentially allowing an athlete to achieve high levels of performance. And whilst we chase that ideal through what we know about force application and ground contact times and and angles of projection, etc., we often miss the opportunity to expose the athlete to the relevant stimulus or perhaps even find a way to combat the lack of readiness in a certain area and so what i see from Stu is that he uses the constraints of everyday fluctuations to the advantage to create stability and adaptability from the athlete and so that allows them to essentially rise to the occasion when they are challenged once more on a given day there is no way to create certainty in an environment and so he doesn't try to do that he tries to tease out the athlete to become self-sufficient and as he said he acts as a facilitator in that process versus a director so he lays the groundwork for the athlete to be their own creator essentially or maintainer whatever way you want to look at it but no doubt you're going to be interested in what Stuart has to say in this conversation as always i want to take the time out to thank the affiliate of this podcast track barn who are a texas-based track and field superstore specializing in everything from customized apparel to footwear to track and field equipment they've supported this podcast for over a year now And so I'm very thankful for their continued support. And if you'd like to purchase any of their site-wide goods, you can do so by heading over to their Track Barn website using the promo code TNF10 at the checkout. Now let's go forth and listen to the wisdom of Stuart McMillan. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I am very fortunate to be joined today by the CEO of Altus and Elite Sprints coach, Stu McMillan. Stu, how are you doing? Really good. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Cole. Appreciate uh, appreciate being here. 
Yeah, well, I'm, when I mapped out this podcast, what, probably a year and a half ago, I made a list of probably 40 names of people that I wanted on this. And I did definitely build up a, a sort of, I would say, a flow in what I do before I was going to get someone of, of your knowledge on here. And so I'm very excited to have you on and, and talk about some deep topics within sprinting. But before we even get to that, I'd love to talk I'm a little bit about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. You've made a recent change with Altus moving over to um, Atlanta, and that's definitely seen some new members of, of your group join in and, and probably some reframing of your structure and how you do things. But uh, of course, also with a very honorable mention is the, the coffee scene has changed as well. So describe to us a little bit about um, what you've seen in the last few months as you've uh, changed what is a very successful and well-known setup over there in Phoenix to uh, a new scene in Atlanta. Yeah, well, you you hit the nail on the head there, Colm. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I just got tired of the coffee scene in in Phoenix, and we need we needed to find a new one. Um, obviously, I'm joking. The the coffee scene in in Atlanta is actually quite good. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were in Phoenix for nine years, and. Phoenix has a lot of really good things going for it. Um, what it didn't have going for it is it's not a super attractive place to live in for, let's say, like the, the typical sprint athlete. You know, it's warm all year round. So from a training perspective, it was fantastic. But it was hard to get, it was harder and harder for us to get people to move there just because it was so far away from where most of them are. And because it was just a very different culture than what many of them would have been used to. So, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's, I like Phoenix, but nine years for me there, that's, that's a long time for me to be in one spot that I probably didn't see myself living for much more than five or six years. So we've been thinking about what our next move would be probably for at least the next, the last three or four years. And then, you know, the pandemic just forced us to make, you know, maybe bring that decision, you know, forward by a few months or maybe a couple of years and say, okay, we're, we, the constraints that we had around the pandemic and staying in Phoenix where we didn't have a track to train on because the track that we've been using for the previous nine years was owned by a school and the, the, uh, the school district had shut down all of their tracks. So we didn't, we couldn't train anywhere. We were obviously had this partnership with Exos where we had our, uh, you know, our offices and our conference rooms and stuff within Exos, which was amazing, fantastic. It was a great partnership. But as soon as they closed down, we're homeless. You know, so we we just we knew this before, but it just brought to light that, you know, our destiny and our future wasn't really in our hands when we were so reliant upon other people. So we we started thinking, you know, a little bit more seriously about where we want to be, when we want to make that move. And, um, you know, the opportunity uh, arose to come down here to Atlanta and Atlanta is a very sporting city. It's in the middle of the Southeast. There's a lot of athletes from this area. It's close to where many of them uh, grew up. We thought it might be an easier place for us to be able to recruit athletes to come to. 
uh, it being a sporting city, it felt like we could probably have a greater uh, impact into other sports other than just track and field. Because uh, while many in the track and field world feel that we're a track and field company, the reality is 80% of our community or our customers or the people that are part of what we do come from sports other than track and field. So um, we felt like Atlanta was a really good fit with that. Uh, there's a lot of um, you know, good uh, professional sports teams here in, in many different uh, other sports. There's many large universities here, smaller universities here. So we just thought that the opportunities that could be available to us were probably greater here than they were, uh, or definitely greater here than they were in Phoenix. So that brought us here. Uh, and then we still, honestly, we don't know what the future really looks like in Atlanta, um, mainly because we didn't, you know, I'd, I'd been to Atlanta once prior to coming here. I came here for a week. Uh, got to know the city a little bit, said, okay, this looks pretty cool. Let's do it. And uh, then the decision was, okay, we're going to live here for a year, a year and a half, and then decide, is this going to be our full-time long-term home? Can we do something here? And then, uh, you know, before we actually committed to, to, to that process. So we're, we're uh, what are we now? May, I got here in November. So what's that about seven months or so, seven mm -hmm. or eight months into this move. Uh, enjoying it. It's a great city. It's a really great city to live in. Some of the, um, you know, the facilities here are fantastic. Um, so we just look forward to getting to know more and more people here, exploring more and more different opportunities here and working with different uh, people in the area. You know, it's getting to know people at the universities, getting to know more people at the professional teams here, and then just becoming a part of the community. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what brought us down here. And uh, you know, are we going to be here in five years? Not sure yet, to be honest with you. But we'll uh, we'll probably, you know, I'll, if you ask me a year from now, I'll probably have a, a better idea of what that answer would be. Mm -hmm. um, but so far, so good. We're we're digging it. And yeah, um, you know, because we were in a new city, it's a it's a slightly different athlete group. Most of the athletes that were with us in Phoenix came with us, um, so that's great. Um, but I'll be honest, you know, many of the athletes left when COVID hit anyway, because they all had to go home. So we, you know, we had 24, 25 athletes uh, prior to the pandemic. And then we restarted here with, um, you know, 14. So that's, that's the smallest group that we've had, you know, since we started, we had 13 in 2013, which was our first year. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a little bit of a, a, a little bit too small, really. You know, I've, I've got 10 in my group and there's three other long sprinters and that's it. So we uh, ideally we've got eight to 10 per group where we have eight to 10 short sprinters, eight to 10 long sprinters and eight to 10 hurdlers. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at building towards for the for the next year or two. So it's uh, we look, really look forward to it. Yeah, as you transitioned out of World Athletics Center, I believe it was even a good depth in the jumps. I'd imagine at some point that was kind of when Dan was really involved it was kind of a breeding ground for, for world-class jumpers as well, which was cool. Um, yeah, well, we started off, we, it's, you know, the whole thing kind of started from some conversations that our founder, John Godina had with um, three pole vaulters, Brad Walker, Steve Lewis, and uh, Steve Hooker. And, um, you know, Dan was coaching those guys and I was helping out. I was traveling with them on, on two, two competitions through Europe and, you know, 
I, I don't know anything about pole vault, but I could get them to the box somehow and I could keep them healthy and, you know, you know, help, help them with their running. But it's, um, you know, when, when John started talking to these guys about, you know, the world athletic center, that's when they came to me and, uh, you know, Dan got involved and Andreas got involved and, you know, we are our very first year. I think we had, like I said, we had 13 athletes. Most of them were jumpers. We had a couple throwers, mm-hmm. we had a few jumpers, a couple sprinters, and then we we just sort of grew from there. And then 2015-16 season, um, it was like a you know a large college team. We had 108 full-time athletes in all the event groups, and at any one time we had uh, you know up to 40 or 50 visiting athletes we had relationships with the korean federation and the chinese federation so there was a lot of uh international athletes visiting us uh, at the time as well so on on any one day say in 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 march april or may you might see 140 to 150 athletes out on the track you know my i had three separate groups running simultaneously it was it was pretty chaotic it was a lot of fun but um yeah it was really it was it was it was a really chaotic probably too chaotic to be sustainable so long term you know when dan um retired from full-time coaching after the the real games we kept the, the jumps program for another couple of years but it just became harder and harder for us to you know to to continue to make the financial commitment towards it you know as a company it costs us a lot of money to to keep well any athlete here i mean it's we, we lose a lot of money on every athlete that's 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 with us and, um, you know, it just became, we had to make choices and it just became harder and harder for us to justify keeping throwers, jumpers and distance athletes, as well as the sprinters. So we decided as a company, um, almost forced into actually from a financial standpoint to just focus on the sprinters and that's where we're at now. Yeah. And I'd imagine at the peak of that, the coaching quality, not to dismiss that anyone wouldn't try their best to manage it all, but it probably was very hard to get into those fine details, which of course, with all the content that Altus delivers online, like you guys are very well known for being pioneers in, you know, the incorporating trackside therapy and, and looking at things from a very objective standpoint, like nobody really gets into those details from a trackside like view as, as you guys do. And I'd imagine that when you're trying to build a brand out there, that would have been increasingly difficult with a conveyor belt of athletes just coming in and out all the time. Yeah, I'm not sure if there was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there was a conveyor belt of athletes coming in and out. When I factor uh, in visiting, that's just yeah, a visiting, yeah, yeah, visiting. yeah, not to say that people yeah. were getting up and leaving, just like, yeah. I mean, like having any one time people come 40, 50. Right, 50. right. We had, um, you know, we had 180 athletes as i said we have 14 coaches and six therapists that that year um and there's there's an obvious trade-off between numbers and quality of service Mm -hmm. so i had i had 24 athletes in my group uh which meant that i ran three groups of eight i had two assistants each of the assistants had 12 to 15 in their group so we had a a male sort of uh, emerging elite sprint group we had a female emerging elite sprint group and then i had the elites of which we had 24 um, and then we had, you know, a therapist that was full-time with my group and a, fe- a, ther- a therapist that was full-time with the other two groups. Um, really challenging, really challenging. Like I said, super exciting and probably, you know, around that time and the numbers that we had and then all the, the visitors that we had, the visiting coaches for our programs and stuff is probably because of all of that was one of the reasons why we became the brand that we became, right? It was, it was really exciting. 
it was they would could they you know visitors would come and see all these world-class athletes from all over the world and these coaches still being able to to provide a world-class service to a very large group but the reality is for sure that there's a trade-off right it's um and it probably there's no probably about it. It definitely, definitely negative, negatively affected the quality of my work with a few key athletes over the course of the next two or three seasons. Uh, we've learned from that and we made, we made steps to reduce the numbers and reduce the, the, the overall, um, you know, chaos and complexity of the system, but still keep enough numbers where it's, where it's still super dynamic, super exciting to be there still a great environment for visiting coaches to come and, and, and learn from us. And we find that, you know, if we've got three groups of eight to 10, that's about right. That's re that's a real nice group size. If you've got 25 to 30 elite athletes out there doing pretty cool things, that's uh, that's enough for us. We can del deliver a high quality product and it's still um, exciting enough as a product for other people to come and, and participate in and enjoy. Yeah. And I think on top of that, when I'm reflecting on what I'd love to talk about today and how that kind of fits in with the story you've just described and, and the, I guess, intention going forward for Altus is like really paying attention to the athletes as they present themselves on a day-to-day -day situation. And you guys, of course, talk an awful lot about technical models. I recently seen um a, a content a piece of content that you put out for drop-in starts and how that kind of uh, plays a role in in developing good sound positions and in acceleration it's a frequently talked about topic you know i see coaches opting for a very horizontal projection and very little air time spending a lot of time on the ground uh, these things are very very i would say the opinions are diverse across the board because I would say from what I've listened from you and the people that are around your circle is that it depends, right? What you're going to cue the athlete and what kind of optimal projection angle you will opt for with that athlete. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how do you start to evaluate what the athlete needs based on who's in front of you? And not just on a large scale, but on a day-to-day -day basis, because um, athletes show up in, in different states every day. Uh, their movement uh, quality uh, could be down to neurological fatigue, or it could be down to, you know, the limitations within their um, musc musculoskeletal system. And that's why trackside therapy is so important. But talk to me a little bit about where you'll start to break down the acceleration model, looking at angles of projection based on the athlete's characteristics and uh, airtime and all those factors that contribute towards uh, creating the individual model. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, of, a lot there, right? Um, first, I've got a beef with you. You said that we, we could, we could talk about coffee for the first half of this conversation. I know, I know it's you coming. Trust me. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> you might have cortados in between reps i don't know you might <laughs> nip off halfway between weights and, and track sessions to to um brash yeah yeah hopefully brash is a great coffee shop you've been have you been to brash i have, have been to 
at my oh. first um I've, oh, I've i've done a little bit of a scanning of the coffee scene in atlanta i brash was the first place and i had um for the very first time an iced cortado in brash and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah we're, it, we're, we're done we're done with oh this you're not an ice drink I don't, person i don't talk to people who have iced coffee <laughs> sorry sorry I've, i I've swear it was like 100 fahrenheit respect that i had for you colm <laughs> i can't believe you're an iced coffee drinker I, it took me a while to get there. It was uh, it was until I moved to Louisiana, I was kind of of that opinion as well. I was like, why on earth would you do that to a drink that's perfectly fine by itself? Um, but yeah, I'll admit it. First time visiting Brash, it was a nice Cortado. And uh, half, I'm going to even go one step further to say it was beautiful. Um, but that was one of... I haven't been to your yellow trading, which is your 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 more stem. Oh, chrome yellow. Yeah, chrome, chrome yellow. yellow sorry. Uh, yeah, it's excellent. It's really good. I actually just... Uh, I just came from there. Uh, I was there this morning doing some work and then I uh, had to come back and have this chat. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great topic of conversation there. And part of it, actually, um, you know, when you said that the coffee is a perfectly great tasting coffee or a perfect coffee or whatever, it's, it's, it's sort of the same. We can take that same terminology and, and transfer it over to what we're talking about when we, when we speak about movement. And you also said this within you know, your, your, your prelude to asking the question was you referred to an optimal projection angle. Mm-hmm. And the question that I would have for people who say that there's an optimal projection angle is what is optimal and how do you know what optimal is? Like, is, is, does optimal even exist? And if it doesn't exist, why, sh- why are we even bothering trying to chase what's optimal? Or where you, when you refer to the perfect coffee, and if there's no such thing as a perfect coffee, then why are you chasing this, 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 you know, this um, unicorn that, that just isn't there? And I would make that argument that optimal doesn't exist, that um, all we can really uh, work towards is what's most effective and most efficient for each individual athlete that we're working towards. So that's what we need to break down. Not forget about optimal, forget about perfect, and forget about all the viruses and biases that we may have as coaches when we're talking about those two words, and instead focus on efficient and effective, efficiency and effectiveness. So let's break down what that means. So effective, effectively, means from a biomechanical first principles perspective, there is a quote unquote, best way to do something for a model to do. Now, our, the problem is here is we work with biological beings, not models. So that doesn't exist in biology. The most effective for a model, great, fantastic but we don't, we, we don't work with models. We work with these humans and all of the different uh, dynamical complex systems that they are part of and are a part of them. So then the question then becomes, okay, what is the most effective model for each of these athletes within what may be from a biomechanical first principles standpoint for a model for that specific task or event or movement 
or sport. So that then, if we back up, we've got the most effective model is probably, or not probably, but even in, in within that, there's a range of variability around what is most effective. So you have this effective right at the top of the inverted U, uh, most effective at the top of the inverted U. You've got a range of variability around what is most effective. And now our job, ideally, hopefully for most athletes and most athletes, you will find that they do exist within this range of variability around what is quote unquote most effective. Our job then is to understand what that range of variability is, where the athlete fits within that, what their own range of variability is around what is most effective for them. And then trying to uh, promote the most efficient task, pattern, way of moving, whatever it is for that athlete within that range of what's most effective. I don't know if that made any sense. Or it absolutely did. It absolutely did. I think it's it's important to start there because when I think of when I mentioned at least how an athlete can show up on a given day, given their readiness and and so forth, like that accounts your terminology there kind of accounts for that, right? That range of variability isn't just like a concrete thing from let's say you I basically creating an ideal it accounts for the fact that that might shift ever so slightly given well, the constraints uh, yeah, it won't might it won't might shift and again ideal is another one of those words that is a, is a unicorn it doesn't exist there's no such thing as ideal you know it's it's those that ideal pattern is a moving goal goalpost it we, we are all dynamical systems meaning we change every second of every day that we're alive yeah right we are all first and foremost unique snowflakes you know we're all unique beings and our our first responsibility as a coach i would argue is to try to understand what makes that athlete in front of you unique what makes that athlete in front of you good at what he or she does try to identify that see where that fits within the cohort of the athletes within this event group to task sport whatever and then see where the gaps are where the limits are and what is what is limiting that athlete from getting more effective and what is limiting that athlete from becoming more efficient mm -hmm. so when an athlete shows up and let's say they're doing acceleration practice um and you're seeing some sort of variance within let's say what you de deem as what you've kind of identified as their strengths and so forth. If that is off on a given day and um, where do you start assessing that? And is there ever modifications made on let's say practices or even is, is it something that you generally start addressing with the trackside routine and so forth? Um, talk a little bit about how you coach that athlete towards those, those strengths that you've talked about or those um, variables that might exist on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess if we back up slightly and ask, what are we hoping to promote from the coach-athlete relationship and the coaching of the athletes that we're doing? Like, what do we want at the end? What is the purpose here? What's the goal of this system? 
and you know we we speak sometimes about stability and a stable movement pattern mm -hmm. and we want a pattern that's repeatable or a movement that is repeatable and that's all well and good and that's that's part of the process right part of the process is that we try to coach in a way in which the athlete can repeat a task over and over and over again mm -hmm. uh, that there's some stability to that pattern you know you as a jumper you would go out there and you know ideally not every single jump looks significantly different from every other jump there's some there's a range of stability a range of variability around what that looks like feels like uh, etc but we also need to understand that stability is information dependent so a stability of a pattern will depend entirely on the amount of information that's in the system that that pattern exists within. So if you're say that, say the pattern is you running down a, uh, you know, a long jump runway in training by yourself, there's not even a coach there. It's just you going out there and just playing around you messing about. Um, that's a totally different level or there is a totally different level in, of information within that system than there would be if you were running down the long jump runway in an Olympic final, and this is your last jump, and you're in fourth, and you're four centimeters behind the medal. Mm -hmm. That's two very different things. And if, that, if the first one was stable, does that mean that the second one is stable? Obviously not, right? You might have a stable movement pattern in training by yourself, in April with no one around and you've got some stability and you feel like every jump looks the same, that has very, very little to do with the stability in an Olympic final, you and four or five centimeters behind a medal. Very, very little. It's a two totally different skills. Skill being the interaction of you, the athlete, the environment that you're doing, whatever task it is that you're producing. So the athlete, the task and the environment the interaction of those three things within this ecosystem that makes up the skill. So the skill of you running down a long, long jump runway by yourself in training in January, February, March, whatever, very different skill, totally entirely different skill. So the stability of that, of you being able to do that by yourself in training is not important to me. What's more important to me is the adaptability of that skill. Is it adaptable across different ranges of information, across different ranges of chaos and messiness and complexity? Can you do this by yourself? Can you do it with a couple other people? Let's, let's talk about, say, block starts. Can you do a block start by yourself? Can you do it with two teammates in training? Can you do it in a time trial in training? Can you do it now uh, with some sort of stability in a low key race? Can you do it in a, you know, in a bigger race, like a national level race? Can you now do it in an international race? Can you do it in a, you know, major championship? Can you do it now in an Olympic final? All of those are different skills requiring different levels of stability within those skills. And the entirety, the totality of that is adaptability. Is how adaptable are you as an athlete to be able to be, to have a stable skill across varying levels of complexity and that is what sport is that's the purpose of what we are doing here with athletes we're not trying to produce a quote-unquote 
stable skill in practice that looks real pretty and say, man, look out, look out what a great job I've done affecting this athlete's technique. It looks so great. The knees are coming up and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is just real pretty. It, that's the, the, the beginning of the coaching process. It's not the end. The end of it is can this athlete com compete at the highest level that they can compete at and still have a stable skill at that level? So that colors everything that we do from a training perspective. I'm not interested in having a stable skill in training. I'm interested in having an adaptable skill. And then what does that mean? And how do we coach adaptability? We definitely don't coach adaptability through doing the same thing over and over and over again with the same level of information within the system. We have to train a adaptable relationship with this task and this environment, meaning we have to vary the task, vary the environment, vary how the athlete is as a human being, as an organism. So at varying levels of fatigue, at varying levels of um, arousal, at varying levels of um, you know, readiness. This is the whole point of training. So when an athlete comes in and an athlete is fatigued and maybe can't project at the same level, I don't change the task because the whole point of coaching is for him to be able to do the same skill and be adaptable. And if I change the task, then I'm losing out on that opportunity. We figure out a way to do it. That's the whole point. That's the purpose here. That yeah, uh, totally. I mean, especially how you, how you kind of wrapped it up at the end there. So a question I have off hearing that is, do you ever find as you, let's say, an athlete is doing a lone block start and you start to adapt where one of your first principles is lacking and then they go in to do a competitive block start and then that is drastically improved let's say the limb switching or however you want to phrase it is improved by that competitiveness or the arousal increase do you find like you opt for environments where it is improved a little bit more so because of course as you mentioned the lone block start or acceleration is not uh, applicable to what they will face in a competition. And so I am saying that, of course, I, I know you'd made the point that there's, you want variance and adaptability, but when you're getting something that's effective and closer to the real um, environment that they will be in, will you opt for that more often, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It's a good question. Um, First, limb switching. I'll never say limb switching. I, I didn't. I didn't switching. want to quote you on that. I hate this whole switching thing. It's they're going down the wrong rabbit hole with this this terminology. Um, that said, to get to your question, um, you know, there's a range of different tasks. There's a range of different skills. There's a range of of messiness within those tasks and within those skills that we can choose. How do we, the question is, is how do we reduce our choices to understand which ones are the most appropriate for the training, uh, training process? Um, you know, so one way to look at this is through the challenge point hypothesis. There's a, a, a certain level of arousal where the most learning occurs for each individual. And that differs 
for almost everybody, for most, and this is for most elite athletes, that level of arousal is pretty high. They, there's no learning at lower levels of arousal because it just doesn't excite them enough. If, you get, if you're learning with something that's super simple, it's a really simple task, you're not super aroused, I got news for you. You're not going to be very good at the sport that you're competing in. You know, for ex I'll give you an example. You know, Andre was, a, was probably the best example I've got. This guy could not, nothing happened at all at anything if he's not super aroused. And he, the only time he's aroused is when it's a major championships on TV. That's it, you know? So the challenge with him went then became, all right, how can we make this, be this guy better? and get this guy learning stuff when the arousal level is so low in just training. He did not care at all that he was getting beat by four or five people in training at every single training uh, menu item. You know, He would get dusted in blocks, get dusted in max speed work, get dusted in speed endurance work, get dusted in tempo work. He did not care. It just the arousal level wasn't there. So it was, it was the challenging thing for me then was to how do I teach this guy who's Arousal level requires this certain height, and I just can't get him there. Um, the answer to that question is I, I really couldn't. <laughs> you know, that, was, that was super challenging for me, and that's maybe one of the reasons why he's no longer with me. But, um, you know, it's, it's finding where that point is, where that challenge point um, is for each individual, and then just pushing them, slowly pushing them higher and higher and higher. So, you know, finding what the challenge point is, where the range of variability is around that, and then just trying to increase it over the course of time. Now, that doesn't mean it's super linear. That doesn't mean that we just go, okay, we're, it's one person by themselves. It's, now it's two people. Now it's three people in training. Then we go to a low-key low competition. Then it's a medium-key competition. Maybe it's a national competition and so on and so forth. We have to almost oscillate and undulate in and out of those different levels because, as we know, you know, um, Learning is nonlinear by nature. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't follow this very linear path. But if you look at it, if you zoom back and you take a big picture uh, perspective of this from, you know, from 10,000 feet, you will actually see that there's a, an almost linear increase in complexity of the systems that they've been operating within and working within and, and training within over time before there's a true adaptability. So a true stability of a highly complex task. But within that linear path, there's zigs and there's zags over the course of time, right? So our job as coaching, and much of this is, is you know, aligns within the, the art of coaching uh, bucket, is just to, you know, know when to jump in and out of being a little bit more aroused and a little bit less aroused. And part of that is understanding the athletes better and where we can push them and when we need to pull away and when we need them having a really successful practice and when we need them to have a really challenging unsuccessful practice because that's that's a big part of the process right we have, we also understand that you know most of our learning comes from from failing and, and having really challenging practices but if we just if all we do as coaches is layer a bunch of failures on top of each other over and over and over again guess what athletes are going to feel like a failure and there's not going to be very much learning there so we have to also search for those opportunities where the athlete can be really successful so i think that's a that's a bigger picture um perspective of the question that you the that you asked 
I guess from a um, you know a smaller uh, zoomed in lens, um, athlete comes in not really feeling it on the day. I my my um, you know uh, my choices at that point are: do we just battle through this? And we is this a all right? This is going to be a, this is your challenge today, man. You're not feeling it. Cool. All right. That's all right. Sometimes you're going to show up at the track in the competition. You're not going to feel it. What are we going to do? You're just going to shut it down. You're going to try and do something else. No, we got, we got to deal with it. So this is the challenge. And if we, if the athlete has the right attitude on the day and, and, and hopefully I can understand that and feel that and sense that, then that's probably what I would uh, bias towards um, others and, or, or that maybe even that same athlete, but you know, might be, you know, other things that are going on and the, you know, the, a, a better uh, option might be to do something different. But I don't feel like there's any hard and fast rules to that. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's important as well because I was of the opinion just based on what I've consumed is that, you know, when things can't be, and I'm, I'm going to use that word again that we shouldn't strive for, when things can't be optimized, like you should shy away. But I, I love how you've described the the necessity for messiness almost and and how that fosters adaptability. I think that's that's really key for a lot of people to hear because it's easy for the athlete and the coach to constantly seek uh, positive experiences, right? And um, as a coach, a question I have is when you're getting to know an athlete, are you trying to expose them to these different scenarios? You know, as you mentioned with arousal, you kind of ranked them almost in terms of uh, what they might elicit. Are you trying to gather where that athlete tends to top out or, or maybe even like lose that sense of their first principles? If that, if I'm, if I'm being clear, because there's, there's a technique where it at a certain level of arousal may not be stable. And so you're then realizing, okay, the need to be spent or need to stay at this zone a little bit longer so that um, I can trust that when it's, let's say, a higher level, they will be able to do what they're supposed to, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, if the purpose of this is to try to coach athletes towards being able to compete at the highest level that they can and be adaptable within all, you know, the entirety of the system. Then how do we move them towards that if we don't know what that is and don't know how they're going to be if when they are when they are there? We, so we have to. To answer your question is yes, we have to. And this is the issue that you that I have with traditional testing or traditional even movement screens. Movement screen, you're taking all of the information out of the system. Every single ounce of information is out of that system. And you're even in many movement screens, you're taking the athlete and, and asking them to do a totally different task. So how can you take inferences from this athlete doing this totally different task in a system that's totally different with very, very little information that's you know, actually going to be within the system that they're going to be competing within and make any inferences from that to how they're going to move within this, this other highly... Uh, complex system. Uh, so the only way that we can truly understand that is give them those opportunities. And, you know, one way to do that is through fatigue. 
um, you know, how an athlete moves when they're fatigued will give you some insight to how the athlete's going to move when they're overly aroused. Some, not the same, but the, biomechanistry, the biochemistry within that is pretty similar. So look for opportunities to challenge the athlete's technical adaptability in moments of fatigue. I think that's really important. Um, that was first probably, probably not from a motor learning perspective, but from a programming perspective that was brought home to me when I first visited uh, Coach Dan Path in Texas in 1995. Um, what I'd known at the, at the time, and I don't think maybe the way that I was coaching, but at least what was the predominant thought in Canada where I was, was the, the Charlie Francis system where if you're, if you're under a certain threshold, then you just don't do it. You do something else, right? Uh, if you can't, and, and you know, there's, there's stories about, you know, he would turn the other way. And if, you, and if his steps sounded a different way than what they should be sounding, then he would shut you down. That's, now, there, a lot of this, this is, is our stories and myths, uh, of course, because, um, you know, the, the reality was that there was quite a bit of fatigue with some of the athletes that he was training uh, within that system. But the, the perception was that if you couldn't go at a hundred percent of your max velocity on max velocity days, then what was the point of doing max velocity? And so that's, that's kind of the, the overall understanding I had at the time of, you know, working on maximum velocity stuff until I went down and spent some time with Dan. And I think when I got down there and this, could that now be just a story that I've told myself over the last 25, 26 years? But I think I got down there on a week one and they had a pretty elite group. And they were, um, I think it was on a Wednesday, the, uh, the training session was this 40-40 session where they do a 40-meter buildup into a 40-meter, you know, max V zone. And Dan's out there timing the second 40. That was the, 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 what they were really working on here was the second 40. And I remember guys running this in, in sort of three, five to three, six, you know, 3.5 to 3.6 in this 40. And this is, you know, this is all hand time. There was no Brower lights. Yeah. I was going to say, is that hand yeah. time? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was all hand time. Um, and I remember, you know, a few weeks later, you know, maybe it was three weeks later or four weeks later, whatever it was, and guys weren't running under four, you know, they'd be the same guys would be running four flat or 4.1. And I, I remember just talking to Dan about this and I said, you know, it's, how can you be working on maximum speed here when they're, you know, 85 to 90% of what their maximum velocity is? He says, well, the adaptations here are pretty much the same as they were three weeks ago. So we're still working on this same ability, even though that the end point is very different. And what he, what I didn't get from that conversation, what probably something that Dan knew and I didn't, and didn't we, you know, this wasn't the purpose of the conversation, was also there's a motor learning aspect from it, right? We're putting them, we're, we're now asking them to move, you know, maximally or at maximum velocity with others, by the way, because they'd be testing during this, they'd be running against each other, but at levels that were significantly lower than what they would be at their very best. So what we're essentially doing there is we're looking at how stable that movement pattern is in a far greater state of fatigue, which may 
which, which research has shown, which from a, a chemical standpoint can replicate higher levels of arousal. So it gives you some insight into the adaptability of that pattern, which is, which is something that was really interesting to me at the time. Um, and I forgot what the question was, but I... Uh, Not at all. I mean, just I hearing... Answer, did I answer your question? You did. And what's, again, I'm going to refer back to my response to your last response. And that is, we kind of just categorize what the definition of of good sessions or productive sessions are without really looking at the whole picture. And, and even what you, you just spoke of, the adaptation even under fatigue is very similar from Dan's point of view and and then the you know stability underneath those conditions is 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 equally valuable but yet it's so I guess not often discussed and um, I find it very interesting that I think coach Smith um, Glenn Smith your former athlete actually has told me that story numerous times. And he told, he told me about how Dan would get them to do elastic endurance kind of reps where, you know, after those speed endurance sessions, they would be doing sorts of bounding so that those kind of final 50 meters would be of a high quality in the race because they had practiced elastic like movements when they weren't fresh. So I kind of think it coincides with some of the points that you just made there. And actually probably around the same timeline because i know he went down to work with dan periodically so yeah, yeah that, that was that was the exactly the same timeline oh time. okay my first trip down there was bringing a group of of athletes from calgary down to texas and that was that included included glenn we went down there probably for the next four years yeah he's definitely known for probably the biggest calves in in, in coaching would you say yeah, well, they were the they were probably the biggest calves in sprinting at the time as well. <laughs> they're they're almost certainly the biggest calves in. Uh, I'm sure there's probably some throwers out there that have got bigger calves. Yeah, yeah. But no, he's also <laughs> the fastest walker. Size of size of calves per body weight. Maybe yeah, Glenn's got the relative calves. He's definitely got yeah. everyone on that, and and he also I would say is the fastest walker out of all elite sprinters um, out there at one point or another so i think he holds two very um obscure records in his career that he probably isn't aware of but yeah i always like to give uh, glenn a shout out when i can because he is he's a he's a remarkable person to be around and also a fellow um he might not admit this so i don't want to label him but i'm gonna I'm, i like to use this term a lot coffee snob i'd say he's a pretty pretty coffee he's a bit of a coffee snob himself there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a, a coffee snob. Absolutely not. You, you appreciate the finer things of something, right? So I have no problem with, with being a, called a snob or being a snob. And I, I guess I got a question for you because, you know, Glenn was a, um, a very, or was, still is, obviously, very intelligent. He was a really introspective athlete and put a lot of thought into how he's not, not, not only his training and what it looked like from mm -hmm. a programming perspective, but from a technical understanding of it, like really dove in deep in trying to be, you know, trying to get this PhD of, of the sport. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like, and I don't know you obviously as well as I know Glenn, but it seems to me like you're very, very similar as an athlete. 
you're extremely interested in the intricacies of, of how you move and why you move that way. And that's going to obviously color your coaching career as well. I guess my question would be, is how do you feel like that level of introspection effective, affected, whether negatively or positively, your performance as an athlete? Yeah, well, first of all, still being an athlete, I, I have to say it's exactly, as you mentioned, it, it has its positive effects and it has its negative effects. The negative effects are that I do go down rabbit holes and, and basically weigh up so many different factors and I guess I'm not knowledgeable enough yet to sequence and sequence them the way in real time. I think that's a big thing as I've got exposed to coaching more um, watching, you know, Glenn and, and any coach I've, I've got to see at meets is that things move fast. And when you're trying to perform, you've got another layer of investment there as well. So sometimes I find myself trying to act as a coach and an athlete simultaneously, which you wouldn't have to know as a, a very high level coach is not necessarily a good thing because we have to be at least somewhat an autopilot when we're, we're performing at a high level. And that is like just allowing your body to do its work as it's basically been challenged to do the previous nine months or whatever it is. So it's it's definitely positively helped me in the sense of I've got myself out of some very difficult situations at high pressure times, I would guess. But at the same time, I would say knowing what I know or what I've learned, there have been competitions where I haven't showed up as, let's say, ready as I would like and things weren't feeling the way they were on a given day that I finally remember and how I applied such force or or how tall I was on my hips without such effort, like those things that you recognize and also then coincide with the performance uh, is not memories that you'd want every athlete to be able to rec recall. And so it is a very negative thing at certain times. And so I've been very keenly exploring sports psychology as well to add another layer of complexity onto it, but to just to manage that and know when to shut off and maybe almost be biased towards leaning into the positive sides of things um, where possible or simplifying things where possible. Because a question I was funny enough going to have for you is, is the difference in your coaching career over time, the fact that you've got better at ordering what's important and what's not and managing a ton of variables at a better quality than what you were doing at your younger career. Because that's what I feel like I, I get lost in that chaos right now. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's everything. Um, again, the way I, I kind of look at this and, you know, my career as a coach has sort of taken this same sort of path where we, we, we bias towards what the most effective movement pattern is because we can see that, we can measure that, you know, there's models for that where the, the, the best performances are always the most efficient, not necessarily the most effective. And I feel like I've done a better job over the course of my career of understanding the difference between effective and efficient and knowing 
how effective is effective enough and just being good enough with that. And that's really, really important is, you know, I used to search for precision when it's not necessarily about being precise. It's about understanding what is good enough and then just trying to affect efficiency and being more and more and more efficient with this good enough pattern. Now, that's not to say that we don't continue to try to improve that good enough pattern or don't continue to improve the effectiveness of that good enough pattern, but understanding that the efficiency of that pattern is the primary KPI. It's not the effectiveness. And I feel like more like most athletes and most coaches that are really introspective, that are really technical, that, re that they can really find themselves going down deep into these technical rabbit holes, spend far too much of their energy on what's most effective at, at the total exclusion of what's most efficient. And that's when you're talking about sports psychology and where that comes from, uh, comes in is essentially motor learning, right? It's, it's, that's what's most important. It's efficiency. It's all about efficiency. And if we look at the best movers, regardless of the sport, they're almost always the most fluid, the most rhythmical, the most efficient. You look at the, the greatest population of where the best athletes within a cohort come from, the best distance runners all come from, you know, uh, East Africa. They run every day. They've got nobody who's worrying about their effectiveness. It's all about efficiency. They're just running. And they've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of repetitions of this pretty, um, you know, th this skill that's, or this, this, this movement or this pattern that is pretty um, um, very similar to what the pattern is at the highest level of their sport. So they develop this efficiency. And if you look at the best sprinters, many of them are coming from the Caribbean. How are they coached when they're younger? is essentially, it's just, just run often. Now that's starting to change. And I feel that because this is starting to change, you're seeing less success come out of the Caribbean lately because they're worrying more and more about what is effective and less and less about what is efficient. And this, I believe, sort of started with this whole thing around, you know, the low heel recovery of, of acceleration and the toe drag. And they started looking and starting really you know, thinking about how, okay, how can we change this efficient pattern into something that's more effective and stealing away from the efficiency to try to find a more effective pattern. And I'll argue, and, you know, you know, people will probably argue with me on this, that Usain Bolt, the world record should be far faster than 958. He ran 958 when he was 23 years old and spent the rest of his career trying to change his acceleration pattern. And what did you see for the rest of his career? He got hurt all the time. Every single year he's hurt and he got slower and slower and slower until he retired. Yes, he still won another six Olympic gold medals. Fantastic. You know, he's, but that could be a nine, four or nine, three something if he just had left it alone and just ran how he did. And I feel like it's negatively affected the entirety of the, the, the uh, track and field community, not only in Jamaica, but worldwide. Um, I, I just feel like as a, you know, just a general rule of thumb, we, or not a general rule of thumb, but as a, as a general overview, we 
we again we just think about what's effective and not as what is efficient because it's harder to define it's harder to measure it's harder to us to understand as coaches it's harder for us to justify our role if we're not actually doing something and trying to you know affect the technique of how an athlete is moving or how that athlete looks when we're watching them move what is efficiency right efficiency a lot of the time is just allowing you know give give the athlete some sort of goal some sort of purpose giving them providing them with a couple of constraints and then allowing the athletes to try to figure out their own way within those constraints within within those guidelines that we're providing them to solve whatever problem that we're uh, uh, providing them as well at the same time. And that's our role within that is very different than if we're more uh, interested in the effectiveness of the movement. So it's a, it's, a, it's a role where we go from director of an athlete's movement, where we're, you know, we're the director here, you're gonna look like this to what's more of a facilitator we're just trying to facilitate the environment that the athlete's going to be moving within with our goal of, again, producing a more adaptable athlete and a, an athlete who can uh, retain some sort of uh, stable pattern within a bunch of different um, contextual environments. And that is, um, it's, it's, I, I find that I've got over the course of my career much more comfortable with that where earlier on, it was more important for me to sometimes to show the athletes how smart I was and how much I knew about the sport or how much I knew about the technical model and trying to impart all this knowledge into the athletes so I could produce this really clean, technical, effective model. And I just felt like, okay, this is probably the wrong way of doing it. These guys all look very good, but I'd rather have people run fast and look good. Well. Guilty as charged, first of all. Um, you categorized my own thoughts, or I would say conceptualized my own thoughts as I tried for a minute or so to underpin the struggles that I go through. And it's absolutely, I lean way more towards the effective side. And as you kind of made a comparison between myself and, and Coach Smith, I think what's interesting is from working with Glenn for as long as I did, I see him going towards the the effectiveness side i do uh, or no sorry wrong efficiency 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 he does not try to quote unquote look for ideals all the time and this kind of habit that we've got into as a society or a community or however you want to say as a sport or performance in general is always looking at how can we again tease out the optimized uh, model that you know as you mentioned does not exist and instead, it's and I love that aspect that you just mentioned with motivation to showcase knowledge. I believe many coaches can get stuck into that rabbit hole as well because they they really, especially some athletes who or coaches who didn't have a very successful career as athletes, they want to kind of make up for that with their coaching career. And so they're all constantly trying to prove themselves and show that they can get a direct correlation between work put in and success. And so what they're then doing is trying to put themselves in scenarios where that can be validated as often as possible. So it's like so funny how, how often you have to like strip back what you're doing it for and how that can actually influence 
how you instruct on a day-to-day basis and whether you're doing the best service for the athletes um, as possible. And I, I love how you unpacked your own situation there and the journey that eventually has now culminated in the fact that efficiency is just where you're leaning towards often. And so do you believe that, you know, motivation plays a, a role in that? How else do you think coaches can begin to lean towards efficiency? Is it just being okay with good enough on a certain day? Is that kind of a mentality that, that summarizes it in a sense? I know that's very like overly, overly general, generalized way to look yeah. at it, but. I, I think we have to have a pretty in-depth understanding of what most effective is, what that means. Mm-hmm. Have a pretty in-depth understanding of the range of possibilities around that. Mm-hmm. Have an in-depth understanding of what a most effective model is for each individual athlete in front of us and understand what the range of possibilities or the range of vari- variability around that most effective model is within each a- athlete as well. And then our job is just to keep them within that range. That's it. That's the, that's the good enough part of it, right? Here's perfect. It doesn't exist. We already know that. Here's the range. Our job is to keep them within that range and maybe improve that range, just move it towards what is more effective over the course of time, understanding that most efficient is still the most important thing. And we do that through just providing various guardrails, various constraints, various different training parameters to try to create those opportunities for the athletes to do that. And you know, a, a, a heuristic that I have is, is my goal each day is to say nothing to every athlete. And I use that as my goal. And then obviously I will always say something, but the goal is to say nothing. And then I work backwards from there. Okay, so I, how do I limit the amount of words that I use with this athlete once the training is started? Before training, we can have conversations about what the goal of the session is, what the objectives of this session is, what are maybe some of the strategies that we can employ to try to you know, reach this goal or these objectives. And then once the session's over, we can debrief the session and talk about, you know, okay, how did those strategies work? What can we learn from those strategies? How can we maybe you know, change these strategies next time we have this same goal or these same objectives? But in between, my goal is to say nothing. As I said, I'm, I've, I've failed every time, but it's... Um, I, I, I just feel by having that as a heuristic or as a goal of myself, it, it, re, it helps me to reduce the time directing rather than facilitating. How can I put them in opportunities, provide them guide rails or constraints where they can learn the most and, re, and help uh, reach whatever the goal or the objectives of that session is. Um, and yeah, it, it's, I, I wonder if you ask Glenn, and I, I, and I feel like, um, and I haven't seen Glenn coach in many, many years, but I, I wonder if you ask him, if, if you tracked the path of your own career, have you had a similar path? Have you gone from what's more effective and you've got this model in mind where you're trying to get every, every athlete working towards this model and you've understand this variability around this and there's uniqueness around this, and each individual complex dynamical system that we work with have this range of various, you know, uh, solutions to this puzzle that we may give them. I wonder if he's moved in that direction. I would guess that he has. And I would guess that most coaches do do that. 
And I feel, you know, we look at the quote unquote old school coaches that we perhaps earlier in our careers, and I definitely am I'm guilty of this, sort of derided their technical knowledge because you don't hear them really saying anything technical. You see them basically just setting up a program and going out there and maybe yelling high knees or fast arms or whatever. But the reality is the athletes still are super efficient and they're fast and they do well. And that's our goal. And maybe, just maybe, all these coaches, the old school coaches that don't say a lot that we sort of, you know, assume that they don't have in-depth biomechanical knowledge or coaching or coaching knowledge. Maybe they do. And they've just done a better job than we have of throwing out all the stuff that doesn't matter and focusing on getting back to your question on what good enough is. And this is good enough. We're not being, you know, we're not, we don't have this perfectionism virus. We understand what good enough is. That's my goal every day is just to have an eight out of 10 from every athlete every day. That's our goal. Sounds like a practice of groundedness type philosophy. Um, I know that you, you, re you read that book recently, or at least you tweeted that you were going to read it. And uh, Brad Stolberg is a regular on my Twitter feed. And I know he talks an awful lot about that mentality, him and Steve Magnus, which I think is, is really insightful because more often than not, we are spending too much time on trying to get these one-off heroic efforts as they kind of quote instead of pursuing good enough and how that can accumulate over time because one thing i think coaches and athletes alike can agree on is that we know consistency is the the key ingredient and yet we keep trying to make changes to essentially that knock us out of consistency if that makes sense like i've seen as you mentioned some people just make drastic changes in their acceleration model and then subsequently they have an injury and it's like if they'd just been content with good enough and um, continued on, they probably would have got to where they needed to go. And it's funny as well, you would, um, oh, I'm trying to recall the point that you made about, oh, learn, I think the nonlinear thinking that or um, nonlinear progression to an athlete's um, or, just, or just skill acquisition in general is really important because you mentioned to know what's good enough, you do have to know a lot about the athletes and probably have gone through a lot of ups and downs, learning what their strengths are, what they struggle with and so forth. So it's not to say that like, you know what most efficient is straight off the bat. There is a, 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 a kind of ebb and flow to, to, to understanding that before you can start to refine that process. And, and so like, it's not like, having any sort of understanding to what most effective is is not helpful it absolutely is helpful it guides it but it's like it's not the thing once you've started to build up your data points yeah 100 percent. yeah you're 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 bang on there um you know the, the other the one point that you made there that i might uh potentially disagree with is is consistency being the goal and I don't necessarily feel that that is the goal. And as, as I said, it's adaptability is the goal. Can you be stable within multiple, multiples of different environments, different situations, with different levels of messiness, chaos, complexity, so on? That's the goal for me. Now, maybe, maybe you can just, maybe that's just semantics. Um, 
But for me, when, when I'm looking at trying to build, quote unquote, an adaptable technique, so a technique is that skill without all of the context. So it's jumping. Maybe, maybe the technique is, uh, is penultimate to, uh, to take off. Maybe that's the technique that we're working on is uh, setting up that penultimate and leaving the board. And if I'm trying to build that, what does that look like? And it's not about being consistent over and over and over and over and over again. It's not about being able to repeat that over and over and over again. It's for us to understand what the most effective way for this athlete is, how they can do that, what the bandwidth of variability around what is most effective is, and then exploring the edges of that. That's how we build a more adaptable technique is not by trying to do the same thing over and over and over again, but by exploring the edges of that technique. So can I be a little bit quicker on my penultimate? Can I lower a little bit more? Can I be longer on the penultimate? Can I be more vertical on the takeoff? Can I be more horizontal on the takeoff? How do I manipulate all these variables around this, these two steps at the edges of this technique? And that's how we build a more adaptable skill. Of, you, I mean, you completely... I mean, prove me wrong straight away because you can have consistency without meaning, right? If it's not ultimately leading into the adaptability, then makes sense how consistency can just, yeah, you accumulated sessions, but has it, has it really led you to anything that is relevant to the, to the end goal, which is of course, something I did not account for when I said that, but I know you're um, short of times too, because you are going to travel to, the track meet that unfortunately you you didn't have the chance to to go to the other day or or at least um compete in because of the the weather conditions so uh, i'm gonna allow you to do that but i want to as i do with everyone and as every other podcast host in the world does is allow people to follow the guest on social media or just keep track of the wealth of knowledge that Clearly, you do a better job than, you know, I have to say everyone else that I've had in this podcast, because it is what you do and what you have to do for the benefit of, of Altus and the track and field community. Um, so I know there's a lot of content on there. How can people find you? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to say that. I appreciate your kind words. Um, I'm fairly regular on Twitter, not as regular on Instagram. On Twitter, I'm Stuart McMillan1, S-T-U-A-R-T, McMillan is M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N-1. Um, Instagram is fingermash, F-I-N-G-E-R, mash. Uh, Altus, uh, we're altus.world and Altus on Twitter and Altus on Instagram. We've got a bunch of different courses, mentorships and memberships. We've got a brand new membership that just started, uh, the Connect membership, which is a monthly membership, which we're pretty excited about, which is going to be, I feel like it's the greatest um, value in the entire industry. Um, it's my, my job or part of my job is to try to convince the community of the value of this as well. So we can build our community because that's kind of what this is all about, right? Is it's us forming this great big community of really creative and curious people and learning from each other. So that's, that's our whole goal right now. Well, I'll jump on that and say that even though I haven't, I'm not a connect member yet myself you know, people need to get on to the website and see the array of courses that you have. As you mentioned, there, there's not just 
basically something for track and field fanatics, although there is courses on every basically event discipline that you can imagine. And from the top coaches in the world in that, you know, you guys do digital education differently as far as track and field goes. And, you know, everyone needs to, to be aware of where they can get high quality service. So for those who haven't done that and are yet to kind of explore the Altus website, you need to get on there and avail of all the great content that is um, on the website and, and very educational in nature, as well as everything that Stu likes to post on his Twitter. And of course, if you are a coffee connoisseur and uh, everything aside from track and field, like you need to see that Stu generally enjoys a iced cortado and brash, just like myself, <laughs> just like myself, <laughs> um, you know, uh, in Atlanta. So no, but actually, just a question to close. What is your what is your favorite drink? What's your go-to? Is it a Cortado, just a regular? No, I have I have three coffees a day. I have uh, two espressos in the morning, and I have a macchiato in the afternoon. Okay, so you're a, a four ounce or less guy, or is that is a macchiato even four ounces? It's like maybe two. Uh, my a, a macchiato is an ounce and a half to two ounces. Yeah, and then okay. and then about the same of of milk. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stu, for joining me this afternoon. Best of luck at the competition. And, um, you know, I know you're in Jacksonville on Friday and I am too. So maybe we'll have to join together for a nice Cortado. Good stuff, mate. All right, guys. Thanks again for tuning into the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We will talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks again for taking time to listen to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. I hope it was enjoyable and educational. If you'd like to help out the podcast, there are a number of ways in which you can do so. You can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review. In addition, you can go on over to patreon.com TNF performance and leave a donation. Thanks again as always and take care.